The Ark When people consider Noah's Ark today, it seems they too often focus only on all the facts and figures about the size, seaworthiness, animals, etc. How big was it? What is gopher wood? How many animals were on it? Were there dinosaurs on it? Was the flood truly universal? On the one hand, such curiosity is natural. On the other, overemphasis on many of these details detracts from more important aspects of the story and blurs the mirror of Noah's time to our own. So yes, Noah's Ark was impressive statistically. Depending on the most accepted length of the biblical measure cubit, it was 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high. That is certainly huge for a wooden vessel, but not nearly as large as the Titanic, and nowhere near the size of modern oil tankers, container ships, or aircraft carriers. Some scientists have declared it impossible for a boat that size made out of wood to last very long at sea, if it could even be built at all. But this is simply a bad way to do science. The scientists simply weren't there. They have no evidence either way. To declare something impossible up front with no evidence and no observation is bad science. After all, modern scientists are still as unsure of how the Egyptian pyramids were built as were the ancient Greeks who marveled at them 2,400 years ago. They have ideas and theories, but no hard knowledge and certainly no consensus. Well, they have even less evidence and data about Noah's Ark. So what makes some of them so sure? Here are some facts and figures. There are an estimated 2.3 million stones in the Great Pyramid alone. Scientists estimate it took 20 to 30 years to build. Even at the later rate of 30 years, workers would have had to be placing 3.4 blocks every minute. The average is around 3 tons per stone. Some are estimated at 15 tons, others as much as 50 to 70 tons. Imagine that. There had to be enough skilled workers to cut, transport, haul, and lift around 3 blocks every minute, placing them with incredible planning and precision constantly for 30 years. They built a structure that remained shrouded in mystery and unrivaled in height until the 19th century. But for ancient people to build a wooden boat larger than we expect is impossible? Give me a break. The scientists were not there. They have no observations or evidence. All that exists is the biblical record. Believe it or do not believe it. But do not claim modern science rules out something that it does not. Nevertheless, the flood narrative is remarkable. It is, in fact, more remarkable than most people realize. At some point after Noah's sons were born, when Noah was 500, remember, God told Noah the plan. The rain did not begin to fall until, we are told, Noah was 600 years old. This means Noah could have had as long as 100 years to build and prepare the ark. He was instructed to gather one pair of every animal and bird after their kind, but especially to gather seven pairs of every quote-unquote clean animal, something we're not quite sure of, but probably related to the later sacrifices and dietary laws of the Israelites. He was also instructed specifically to gather enough food for the people and animals on the ark for the duration, 
and they were likely wise enough to gather extra, not knowing exactly what would come about afterward. That's all quite a task, but clearly not too much when given 100 or so years to plan and carry it out. Once it started raining, Noah, his sons, and all their wives went in, and God shut the door. Rain fell for the famous 40 days and nights, but this was accompanied by water gushing up from aquifers and springs deep in the earth. The record says the water rose over the tops of the mountains. Indeed, all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered, more than 20 feet underwater. Genesis 7, 19-20 Then comes the shocking part. Many people have heard of the rain for 40 days and 40 nights, but they often mistakenly think that was the end of it. Not so. The record says that was just the beginning. Including the time of the rain, the floodwaters prevailed for 150 days, but it still wasn't over. The floodwaters then slowly started to recede, and the ark came to rest on the mountains, plural, of Ararat. But it was another 74 days before the tops of the mountains were visible above the water. But this was hardly enough land on which to live or even camp, so Noah waited another 40 days. It was then he began sending out birds. Several tests and inspections of the ground took many more days. When it was all over and the family and animals were finally released, they had been in the ark for a total of 370 days. That's remarkable, almost incredible, I admit. But that's the biblical record. Personally, I believe it, and that it is all possible especially with God's grace and aid. But beyond all the astounding numbers and universality of it all, there is the even more important meaning which tends to get obscured. And it is even beyond the simple moral that God judged a sinful people and spared only a family and a boatload of animals. The more relevant story is this. God is always in the process of not just saving, but making a new creation. Men constantly, gradually, but constantly nonetheless, pervert and violate God's creation and order. But God always holds out grace for a long time. He is patient with us. It is His intention that we would partake of His new creation and build it gradually the good way, His way. But instead, we destroy it gradually, insisting on our way. After time, God's new creation can only come about through catastrophic judgment clearing away the rebellious and wicked, no matter how legal and beneficial they've made themselves out to be, and sparing only a remnant. God always establishes his new creation by choosing that remnant to spare. God makes promises, called covenants. This is exactly what God did with Noah. It's no surprise that the story includes just such a covenant. I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. Genesis 6.18 It was all of God's providence and power and his faithfulness working through Noah and his family. It was God's word, God's work, and God's spirit that moved Noah. This is symbolized, as many know, in the dove that Noah sent out the window to look for dry land. But it is even more clear when considered in the big picture of the whole Bible. At many points, Scripture rehearses these very relational, covenantal images, usually in conjunction with periods of transition and judgment. In the beginning, God creates the heavens and earth void and without form. 
Genesis 1-2. But then the spirit, wind of God, hovers, literally flutters like a bird, over the waters. And out of this comes ordered creation, light, land, and life. Then God specifically creates man out of the dry land, and God breathes his breath spirit into that lifeless form, and it became a living image of God. God's Spirit now abided in a temple made without hands, mankind. But man fell into sin, and sin pervaded society. Even good men perverted their ways. New creation could only be sustained by judgment first. A transition had to come. It did come with Noah, but with the same imagery. God had Noah prepare an ark, temple, in which life was preserved, which floated upon the void and formless, flooded earth. After some time, a dove is sent out, an image of the Spirit hovering over the face of the deep, until dry land appears. A new creation is born. Noah emerges from the enclosed ark, a tomb, an image of resurrection. Noah was like a new Adam in a new creation. What Noah does next, we will see in the next chapter. The imagery recurs again with the Israelites. First, God's wind parts the Red Sea and allows them to pass on dry land, while the Egyptians are drowned in its floodwaters behind. But then, when most of the Israelites rebel, they are the ones judged, living in the void and without form wilderness of Sinai. The unfaithful die there in judgment, but the faithful remnant are led by the Spirit, pillar of fire and cloud, across the waters of the Jordan, again on dry land and into the promised land a new garden or new creation. Jesus himself replays this exact picture. He is baptized in the waters of the Jordan River. At that very moment, the Spirit descends upon him in the form of a dove, and this is indication to John the Baptist that Jesus is the Messiah. Matthew 3, 13-17 Indeed, Jesus is the new Adam, the new creation, the new Israel, the new temple, etc., As part of his ministry bringing in a new creation, Jesus predicts the destruction of the Old Covenant temple, Matthew 24. He even referred to Noah as a warning of how this would come, Matthew 24, 37-39. He told his audience this would happen within their generation, Matthew 23, 34. It did. The coming of the Son of Man here is not for a rapture, but in judgment against that wicked, unbelieving generation that would reject and crucify him. This coming in judgment occurred in AD 70, exactly in one generation after Jesus predicted it. At the same time, Jesus predicted the rebuilding of the temple, his body, in three days, his resurrection, Matthew 26, 61, and John 2, 19. The old temple was thus being replaced by the new one, The old creation was once again being replaced by a new creation. This new creation was the new temple, the body of Jesus, in which is preserved true life. It was the new stone cut out without hands, filled with the Spirit, which would grow and fill the earth. Daniel 2, 35-45 But this body temple is not limited to Jesus' physical body. There is a whole doctrine of the body of Christ in Scripture. Romans 12, 5 1 Corinthians 12, 12-27, Ephesians 3, 6 and 5, 23, Colossians 1, 18 and 24, 
Compare also with John 15. And it is all implicated in the doctrine of the new temple as well. Peter, whose name means stone, mentions how believers are living stones that build up a spiritual house. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 2.5 Paul is even clearer on this point. Union with Christ in a new man, he connects with the new temple image. You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Ephesians 2, 18-22 In other words, the church, the body of all believers in Christ, are part of the new temple. They are therefore the new creation, the body of the new Adam, the new dwelling place of God via his Spirit. For this reason, Paul can say, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. 2 Corinthians 5.17 That is what the story of Noah means, why it is important to the Bible as a whole, and why it is important for us even today. It is not about trivial scientific debates, but about the judgment of God collectively on whole societies that have neglected God. It is about his promises made to his covenant people. God did make a famous promise to Noah and all of creation never again totally to flood the earth like that. But he has also promised to judge wickedness in the land in other ways. He has demonstrated this over and over in history. Empires rise and fall at his command. He is very patient, very long-suffering. He gives many chances to turn and repent. Sometimes, however, collapse is inevitable. He expects us to live his way, and he will hold us accountable for doing so. In times like this, we need to ask ourselves what kind of society we need to be. Shall we be faithful lights shining in the midst of darkness, driving away the darkness? Or shall darkness so prevail as to plunge us into a tomb once again? How do we remain faithful? In the next chapter we will turn once again to Noah for the answers.